This is the moment you've waited for. <laughs> you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and place it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I have come to fulfill them. For truly I say to all of you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, if anyone relaxes even the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if the people sitting on this Galilean hillside some 2,000 years ago, listening to the words from this blue-collar carpenter named Jesus. I wonder if they had any clue how powerful and life-changing these words would be. Like, do you think they had any concept that 2,000 years later, on the other side of the planet, in Modesto, California, in a different country, in a different culture, on a different continent, and in a different language, we would still be talking about these very words they sat and listened to. Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount, and it is, without a doubt, the greatest sermon man has ever heard. It is a masterpiece of Jesus' preaching. And today we're going to continue our series looking through this sermon. If you have your Bibles, grab them and open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible today, we got you covered. Raise your hand. One of our ushers will come hook you up with a Bible. You'll find Matthew 5 in our Bibles on page 810. While they're passing out Bibles, let me introduce myself. My name's Chad. I'm one of the pastors here at Shelter Cove. If you are a guest with us for the first, second, or third time, we love that you're here with us. Welcome to our church. Want to give a big shout out to all of you joining us online. It's great to have you with us also. Um, if you've got any kind of church background, I'm going to guess that you've heard something on this salt and light passage before. Like, I'm going to guess you've heard sermons or devotions on this. Maybe even in Sunday school, you used to sing a song that went like this. This little light of mine. I'm gonna let it. Oh, so you did sing that song. All right. Like, I'm gonna guess you've heard sermons on this. You might even be able to predict some of the points I'm gonna make in this sermon today. You're like, Salt, I know where he's going there. Heard this one before. If you don't have a church background, you're a little bit newer to church, I'm still going to guess you've heard expressions like this in English. You've heard people say stuff like, oh yeah, that guy down the street, he's just a salt of the earth kind of guy. Oh yeah, that girl, man, when she walks into the office, doesn't she just light the room up? 
These expressions that we use in English come right out of this biblical text here. So whether you have a church background or you don't have a church background, what I've seen is that people tend to be kind of familiar with what Jesus is trying to say with salt and light. Do you want to know what people are not familiar with in any way, shape, or form? What he says in the very next text. When Jesus starts talking about the law, people are like, duh, what? Because he's kind of confusing. In fact, critics and skeptics of the Bible will use verses 17 through 20 to attack the credibility and the consistency of the scripture. And what I want to submit to you today is this. You will never truly be salt and light if you don't also understand what Jesus is talking about with the law. If you just see salt and light divorced from the law, you have settled for a cheap imitation of what Jesus really wants. So let's do this. Let's start off and pray, and then I want to tell you a story about how to not be salt and light. Jesus, I pray, God, now that you would help me. I mean, Lord, you are and you, you were such an incredible teacher, and I just feel so... Uh, like small and inadequate to try and do a good service to this word here, Lord. It's, it's brilliant what you did here. So Holy Spirit, I guess this is what I'm praying for. You would help me and you would help my friends here. Help me to communicate well in a way that honors and does a good service to your, your scripture here. And I pray that my friends would be able to hear, God, that you would open up their eyes and open up their minds to the wonderful, wonderful truth that's here. God, may we leave this place closer to you, May we love you more. And the best way I know how, God, I just pray that you would change us. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Let me tell you how to not be salt and light. I had a friend growing up, and I didn't get permission from my friend to tell you the story. So he's going to have to remain nameless. Um, I don't know how true this story is, but what I do know is that my friend relayed this story to me. He told this story to me. And it's pretty ridiculous. You're going to see what I'm talking about here in just a little bit, all right? My friend had good intentions but didn't always do things the right way. Couldn't really see more than two or three minutes in front of his face. He just had really good heart, good intentions, but made some boneheaded mistakes. Here's a classic example. He was in this area near our neighborhood. It was like this big, uh, like, rain runoff area. Kind of like a big canal, almost. Big canal with a kind of rectangle, like a like three-fourths of a rectangle at the bottom and the side walls. And all this rain runoff would go through there and we'd ride our bikes down there and stuff. Well, he's down there one day and he finds a green spray paint can. And he gets this green spray paint can and he decides it's gonna be a good idea to tag on city of government, uh, city of Rancho Cucamonga government property to tag on there, Jesus loves you. And then he writes underneath it, dash his first name and his last name. <laughs> Like, I think he wanted to make sure Jesus gives him credit for tagging this wall. He chucks the can and goes about his daily life. A month later, city officials and Rancho Cucamonga PD show up at his house. They show up at, the, at his house, knock on the door. They go, excuse me, uh, his mom answers the door. Excuse me, ma'am, we believe your son tagged up, uh, they, he defaced government property. And she's like, well, what do you mean? How do you know it's my son? Ma'am, he signed his name. <laughs> never seen this in the history of graffiti. She's like, ah, it's probably him. That's, he sounds like my son. Now she's kind of, she'd already raised a couple kids. So she's a little bit mom hardened. She's kind of a gangster. And she goes, all right, here's what I need you to do. I'm going to pay the fines, whatever, but can you take my kid to juvie for the day? And they're like, sure. 
So he gets home from school, cops are waiting for him, and they take him off to juvie. And I have this really funny image in my head of my friend sitting there at juvenile hall being like, hey, what are you in for? Battery and assault, what are you in for? Jesus loves you, sign my name. Like I have this image in my head of it just like not going well. This is not what Christ had in mind when he said, go be salt and light. He didn't tell us to deface government property. In your notes, what does it mean to be salt then? Like, what does this really mean? Jesus in verse 13 says, you are, you are the salt of the earth. This is our identity. This is who Christ describes us as. You are the salt of the earth. Now, why did he choose salt? In biblical times, salt had two major functions. It would season and flavor food just like we use it today, but then it would also be used to cure and preserve meat. No modern refrigeration like we have today. And so if you wanted to have meat last for a while, you would cure it with salt so that it would last a while. Now, when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, what he's making a statement about is the trajectory and the culture, the, the climate of the world that we live in. What he's saying is that our world is essentially like a piece of meat that left to itself will be on a downward trajectory of moral decay. So as salt then, next point in your notes, as salt, we slow down moral decay. Part of our identity, this is what we do. Now hear me, this doesn't mean that we're the moral police. This doesn't mean that we're going out, calling out every little sin. You did that, you did that, you did that, you bunch of wicked sinners. That's not who we are. We don't do that. You'll probably get beat up if you do that. Don't do that. What it means is that there's, there's an air about us, there's a character about us that slows down the decay of the world. Now you may hear this and be like, Chad, that's a little bit harsh. It's a little bit harsh to say that the world is on a downward trajectory of decay. Fair enough. All I want you to do is just watch the news for one hour. That's all I want you to do. Just this week, scrolling through the news feed on my phone, I found news articles that had titles like this. New York City professor beat to death with a hammer by former student. Utah teen, 15 years old, sexually assaulted and raped in her own home. Here's the one that made my skin crawl. Georgia mom accused of pimping out her five and six-year-old daughters for money. So all I want you to do is just look at the news. The world left to itself is on a downward trajectory. It's like a piece of meat left out on a hot day. It will not preserve itself. It will decay. It'll get maggot infested, be this rotting flesh full of bacteria. That's what will happen. And Jesus says, as the salt, you slow that down. Salt does something else though. Next point in your notes. We impart a spiritual thirst to people. We should make people thirsty for Jesus. How many of you have ever been into a bar? How many of you don't feel comfortable answering that question? <laughs> so I see the drunks and then the liars. Okay, cool. Cool, I got a good feel for the room now. This is good. <laughs> I'm just, I'm kidding, I'm totally kidding. Safe place, you're all right. If you've ever been to a bar, this is what my friends tell me at least, I've never been, but I'm, just, I'm kidding. <laughs> I gotta let this go, I gotta, I gotta get through this. Um, what you'll see, what you'll see are a lot of salty foods. So like Chex Mix and pretzels and peanuts. And they'll put it out for free. They want you to eat it for free. Why? 
because it makes you thirsty and then you'll drink more, right? You'll buy more drinks. This is what salt does. So Jesus is saying you, you should impart spiritual thirst to people. Their interactions with you should leave them going, man, they've got something I want. I feel thirsty for what they have. Now, there's a huge difference between being overly salty and then being salt. Overly salty is repulsive. It's repulsive. We don't want anything to do with something that's overly salty, but salt is, is just right. Here's what happens when Christians get overly salty. We start to get really condescending and arrogant. We start to pay a lot of attention to outward behaviors. We talk way more than we listen. And when we do listen, we're just waiting to talk. We're not really hearing. We start to get pretty harsh with the word of God, wielding it like a sledgehammer. On the other side of the coin, when we are salt, you'll see that Christians, when they're salt, tend to be very humble. Not like, hey, I'm so humble, look at how humble I am, because that's proud. That's prideful humility. No, just a real, authentic humility. You'll see that they listen really well. I mean, like, they're genuinely listening. They're really hearing you. They serve others. They'll be very gracious and they'll be very charitable in the way that they share the truth of God. They'll be careful with it the way a surgeon is careful with a scalpel. They don't wield it like a bat. They wield it very carefully. And when we're salt, it should leave people thirsty for more. Thirsty for what Jesus can give them. But he doesn't just say salt. He also moves into light. Next point in your notes, what does it mean to be light? What does this really mean for us to be light? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. This is who we are. You don't do light, you are light. This is who you are. Your identity is rooted in this. Okay, well, what does it mean? Jesus explains it a little bit more clearly in verse 16. In verse 16, here's what he says. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Your good works. In your notes, we pursue and practice holy living. As the light of the world, we pursue and we practice holy living. Our, our good works, our attitudes and our actions should shine out into the world. They should shine out into the world and show people what the character and goodness of Jesus is like. Now, Christ says you are the light of the world, but he also said he is the light of the world. So which one is it? Well, Jesus absolutely is the source. He is the light of everything. And I like to think of us as like a bunch of mirrors. We're just a bunch of mirrors that reflect the goodness, reflect the light and the beauty of Jesus himself. And Christ is saying, by your attitudes, by your actions, people should notice you're reflecting a light not of your own. Not of your own. Now, as we move through this, I want you to see a couple of things here. One more point to summarize this whole thing. What it means to be salt and light means we influence others. John MacArthur said this, the next point in your notes, we influence those around us. Influence isn't like strong-arming people. It's not being hostile and being tough and overly aggressive with them. Influencing others is just like this gentle nudge towards God. 
And this is what it means to be salt and light. We just gently influence, we nudge people towards, towards the Father. Now, is it okay if I share with you an observation that I found in here? I'm going to anyways. I'm not sure if you know how this works, but I do the talking and you just sit there and listen. So I'm going to anyways. Um, as I look through verses 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Do you want to know what I don't see in there? And it kind of bothers me. It kind of makes me feel uncomfortable. I feel a little bit of tension. I feel a little bit uneasy. I don't see anywhere in here what to actually do. Where's the to-do list? You are the salt of the earth. Got it. I'm on board. What do I do? You are the light of the world. Cool, Jesus. What do I need to do? How much more simple would this be if Jesus just went, okay, you need to do A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z, and you need to not do A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z. Then you'll be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And he's like painfully quiet here on this. Why? In the context of Jesus saying these words, there's a group of men called Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And these guys are nailing the to-do list. They are nailing the checklist better than any of us will ever nail the checklist. The Pharisees had more than 600 laws and commands that they kept. They built out laws on top of laws. And they kept them to a T. And Jesus is telling this crowd, those people that you think are so moral and you think are so salt and light of the earth, they're not. Here's what it really means to be salt and light. It seems like Jesus is way more concerned, not about an outward expression of morality, but it seems like he's far more concerned about something happening internally. Next point in your notes. How? How do we actually be salt and light? We need to see the law how Jesus sees the law. How do we actually do this? Jesus goes salt, light, and then he starts talking about the law. And I believe what Jesus says here in the law is the mechanism. It's how we actually be salt and light. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start in 18. I'm going to jump back to 17, and then we'll go 19 and 20, and we'll finish this up. Here's what 18 says. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot. So that means like punctuation. That's like jot and tittles, like periods and commas. Jesus goes, not even the punctuation of the law is going to pass away until all of heaven and earth pass away and until all is accomplished. So Jesus just said, the law is binding. Next point in your notes. The Old Testament law, as we know it, it is binding. It stands. There's no second edition. There's no version 2.0. The law as it stands is binding. And it's going to stand until the present universe as we know it is replaced with the new heaven and the new earth. Now hear me, there's coming a day where we will no longer need the scriptures. And I mean that with full respect and full honor to the word of God. There's coming a day where the new heaven and new earth will arrive and we will gaze upon Jesus with our own eyes. We will be free of all sin, free of all sickness, free of guilt, free of shame. 
we will be complete. The fullness of everything will arrive. We will work and it will not be toilsome. It'll be full of delight and full of joy. We will eat and we will drink and be satisfied in ways that we never thought possible. We will run and we will dance and we will never grow tired. I have a horrible singing voice, but there's coming a day where I'm going to sing like Josh Groban on steroids, bro. I'm going to sing. There's coming a day where all will be perfect and there will be no need for the word of God. But until that time comes, Jesus says the law is binding. None of it's going to pass away. Not even the punctuation is going to pass away. Now, some of you might be sitting there going, well, Chad, I know a little bit about the Bible, and it seems like there's some stuff in the New Testament that undoes the, the old. Well, wait a minute, Chad. I read Leviticus, and it says you can't wear clothes of mixed fabric. Looks like we're all sinning. Wait a minute, Chad. I've read the Old Testament, and it says you can't eat pork. So help me. You tell me I can't eat bacon. I'm walking out of this room right here, right now. Can't believe in a loving God that won't let me eat bacon. In what way is the law binding? Like what laws do we have to listen to and what laws do we not listen to? How does this all work? Well, let's look at verse 17. Here's what verse 17 says. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Next point in your notes. The law is fulfilled in Jesus Jesus fulfills the law. Here's the whole point of the law. The entire point of the Old Testament is to do two things. You ready? It's to tell us you're broken and you have sin in your life. And then it's to point us to Jesus. That's the entire Old Testament. I just summarized 39 books for you. You're broken, Jesus is coming. You're broken. There's a savior coming. That's the entire Old Testament. It's all pointing to Jesus. The law was never, ever, ever, ever intended to save us. Ever. That was never the point. How do I know that? Because Abraham back in Genesis isn't saved by keeping the law. He's saved by putting his trust in God, just like we're saved today. He gets saved before the law is even introduced. We are never saved by keeping the law. The law was just to point out Jesus. That's all the law was to do. You're broken, but Jesus is coming. Like think of all these pictures in the Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system, killing lambs, and then here comes Jesus going, I'm the spotless lamb. I'm the fulfillment of this. The whole mixed fabric clothing thing. You're not saved because you wear the right type of clothes. That's ridiculous. But then the New Testament's going to say those that believe in Jesus are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. How picturesque then is that picture of the priests wearing only one fabric of clothing? That we would be clothed in a righteousness not of our own. You're not saved because you wear cotton or polyester. It's ridiculous. It's symbols, shadows. That's what the whole Old Testament is. Jesus is coming. You're broken. You need a savior. And here comes Christ. I'm the fulfillment. I'm going to fulfill all the law on your behalf. Not only the moral demands of the law, but the sacrificial demands. I'll fulfill it all for you. Why? Because I love you. I love you.
I'm going to be honest with you. I have no clue why Jesus loves us. I mean, we're a bunch of stiff-necked, knuckle-headed, proud people. And yet he's so loving, he's so patient, he's so good in all of, our, all of his ways. I want to show you this verse, Luke chapter 24. We'll throw it up on the screens here. At the end of Luke, after Jesus' resurrection, he goes, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, to the apostles, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus is just like, hey, let's look at the Old Testament. That's me, that's me, that's me, that's me. See that verse? That's about me. That, that represents me. So what way is the law binding? It's binding in the sense that it's all pointing to Jesus, and that's not going anywhere. And Christ fulfilled it. Okay, so then what laws do we need to keep? Let's look at the next text here, verse 19. 19 says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we got two groups of people here. One group is obeying the commands of the scriptures and one group is not. Where are both of these groups found? They're both in the kingdom of heaven. Did you catch that? This is the one of the sneakiest gospel passages in all of the, in all of the Bible. This passage makes so abundantly clear you're not saved because you keep the rules. Oh, my brothers and sisters, that you would hear me on this point. We are not saved because we're nailing the checklist. However, Jesus makes a really interesting point, and it's the next one we're going to hit in your notes. The law leads to blessing, but not salvation. You see, both groups here are in the kingdom of heaven. One's called least, but one's called great. One's called least and one's called great. So then, keeping the rules does nothing to save us, but there is a very real and tangible blessing from keeping God's law in the here and now and in eternity to come. Say, so Chad, well, what laws do we keep? What you see God hold people accountable to outside the nation of Israel in the Old Testament are the moral commands. God never holds the Amorites, the, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Termites, the Uptites, the Outasites. You never see any of those people held accountable for the civil and the ceremonial. The civil and ceremonial laws are like how to worship and how to interact within the nation of Israel. That was specifically for the theocracy of Israel. The way God holds the outside nations and what you see in the New Testament is you see he holds the church accountable to the moral laws of God. And so Jesus is saying here, keep the law. Like obey the moral commands. It doesn't save you, but it leads to a real blessing in the here and now. John Piper, I thought, articulated this brilliantly. And here's what he says. John Piper is a famous pastor. He goes around and when he's on planes and sitting next to people in airports and cabs, he'll tell people, I'm a teacher. And they say, what do you teach? I teach hedonism. And they're usually like, word? He goes, yeah, I teach people how to get the most pleasure out of life. And they're like, dude, how do you do that? And he goes, submit your life to the counsel and the authority of God's word. Because that is where true pleasure, true life, true freedom, true joy, true peace is found. 
It's where you will find everything that your heart is looking for. How different is that from how we usually view God? Don't we usually view God as like this grumpy old man who's trying to keep us from having fun? He's a good father. He's trying to lead us into the fullness of joy. So Jesus goes here, don't get it twisted. The law's good. It'll lead you into blessing in the here and now and in the life to come. But it doesn't save you. This isn't the only verse that says it. Check out Romans 3 here. Romans 3 is going to say this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's pretty clear cut. Check out what Deuteronomy says. Deuteronomy says, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today. So the commands of the scriptures are God's invitation to life. Hey, you want deeper joys? You want deeper fulfillment, deeper pleasures? It's this way. I can tell you this with confidence, walking in it myself, never perfectly. I have seasons where I do well, seasons where I do poorly. But I can tell you this with confidence. The grass is way greener on the side of obedience to God. It's a better life. I don't anchor my salvation in that. I don't anchor my good standing with the Father and my obedience, but I know that there's just blessing and grace upon grace when we walk in obedience to him. So if we're not saved by keeping the law, how are we saved? In your notes, we need to receive authentic salvation. What Jesus says next in verse 20 must have slapped his listeners in the face. It must have been the most demoralizing thing they've heard in their entire lives. Watch what Jesus says in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Ouch. Here's why that must have been so hard to hear. The Pharisees and the scribes are the ones doing it perfectly. Like, let me tell you how intense the Pharisees were. As I said, 613 laws they kept. They built laws on top of the laws. Some Bible commentators will tell you that they were up to almost a thousand different laws. You thought 10 was hard to keep. These guys built out almost a thousand. Here's one, an example. Here's one for an example. The fourth commandment says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. So what they would do is not speak on the Sabbath because they were afraid some spit would come out of their mouth, land on the ground, till up dirt, and that would be, consent that would be counted as work. And they would be violating the fourth commandment. So they deemed it sinful to even speak on the Sabbath. I mean, these guys were so intense with the law and Jesus is going, you need to be better than them. So the crowd must have been like, well, we're up a creek. Can't be better than them. And Jesus goes, that's kind of the point I'm trying to relay to you. You need a righteousness not of your own. The guys that are nailing the checklist the best are nowhere close to what I want. In fact, Jesus later on is going to say of those Pharisees, he's going to say, you make your followers twice the sons of hell that you are. Dang. You need to receive something perfect. 
I'm worried that you're hearing me say, achieve something perfect. You can't. You can't do it. Well, where do we receive a righteousness that's absolutely perfect? This is what we need. We need a righteousness that's absolutely perfect. Where do we get this from? The answer is Jesus. If you're newer to church and someone asks you a question, the answer is always Jesus, just so you know. Get you a little head start here. Why? Because what did Jesus say in verse 17? I'm the fulfillment of the law. Everything God is asking of you in the Old Testament, I fulfill perfectly. And I'm here telling you, I can give you my righteousness. I can clothe you in my own holiness. You don't have to try and stack up your good deeds. Your good deeds stink. They're foul in my sight. They fall drastically short. Even the guys you think are nailing it, they aren't nailing it. Trust in my righteousness. I can do way better than them. My righteousness is perfect. I've never failed. I've never broken the law. And I can give you my standing. We need a righteousness that's absolutely perfect. And here's what's even cooler about the righteousness of Jesus. It creates something in us. And it's the next point in your notes. It creates in us a growing internal delight of God's law. It creates in us an enjoyment of the ways of God. I want you to see this beatitude here. Jeremy spoke about it just a couple of weeks ago. Matthew 5, 6 says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is what Jesus is after. He's after people that genuinely hunger for his ways. It'd be like this, okay? Let me paint the picture like this. Guys, Valentine's Day. You go pick up some flowers for your boo. And you go home. <laughs> And you give your flowers to your girl and your girl's like, oh, thank you so much. Why, you didn't have to get me these. Why'd you get me these flowers? And your response is, well, I know you like this man-made holiday and I knew you would be ticked off at me if I didn't get you these flowers. So here's your flowers. <laughs> How would that go for you? Pretty bad? Pretty poor? I mean, you still got the flowers, but the motivation of the heart was terrible. Or... It could go like this. Baby, I just love you so much, boo, and you're my girl. You're my one and only forever and ever, and I just want you to know I got eyes only for you, right? It could be like that. It could be like that. Okay, so check this out. Thank you. That wasn't my idea. It wasn't my idea. <laughs> Same exact outward action, right? Very different motivation of the heart. And I'm just going to be honest with you. As Christians, we will learn what the moral checklist looks like. But we will have no internal delight of God's ways. No real love and affection for him. So we start begrudgingly, resentfully, spitefully trying to follow God, thinking that we're pleasing him with our outward actions, all the while our hearts are far from him. I just want to break the news to you. He's not fooled by that. He's after people that genuinely enjoy him and delight in him. He's after people that the psalmist will say, have tasted and seen that he's good. So let's wrap this up. Three questions. 
have you received? Have you received the righteousness of Jesus? Or are you still trying to be good enough? It's a hard way to live. Next question. Is the Holy Spirit creating in you a delight of his law? The crazy thing about having this internal delight in God is that God has to create it in us. I know some of you type A'ers out there are like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start reading my Bible every day and I'm going to make myself love God. Doesn't really work like that. God starts to create this in us and he starts to teach us how to walk it out. Have you received this righteousness? Are you internally enjoying and delighting in God? And then the last thing I want to do here is try to put some handles around this sermon, give you something practical to walk out this week. And it says this, pick one area and one action where you can be salt and light this week. So what's one area of life? Maybe it's work, school, gym, friends, wherever. And what's one action? Maybe you're going to pray for them. Maybe you're going to invite them to church. Maybe you're going to uh, bake them a plate of cookies and go, hey, I just love you. I just wanted you to know that. But you got lines in there, and I want you to fill those lines in. What's one area and what's one action? And then in your life groups this week, I'd like for you to share that area, that action, so people can pray for you and encourage you. Maybe you don't have a life group. Well, it's time to join one. It's time to do life with your, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for this wonderful passage. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be salt and light. God, I pray that you would inwardly transform us, that we might love you, we might enjoy you all the days of our life. This is what it means to be salt and light. It's not a checklist. It's really loving you and enjoying you, and it's, it's receiving the full righteousness of, of Jesus for our behalf. So help us to walk in that, I pray, God. I pray that this week, in real tangible ways, we'd be salt and light. I love you so much, God. I'm so grateful for what you've done for me and pray that your grace and your freedom would be real in this place. And I pray these things in your beautiful name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.